North Korea is putting on a tough face as the world confronts the COVID-19 pandemic. Authorities in Pyongyang continue to reassure the rest of the world that nothing is wrong and that the country remains completely immune from the pandemic. And yet, previous international crises, like the global rice panic of 2008, had an outsized impact on North Korea because the country stands so precariously on the edge of economic collapse. Similarly, the country's decision to close its borders to both goods and people in response to the pandemic is expected to have severe consequences on the livelihood of many people. Simultaneously, the country has also been maintaining diplomatic isolation, waving away overtures from South Korea and demolishing the inter-Korean liaison office that symbolized the great advances made since the summits between Moon Jae-in and Kim Jong-un in 2018. But now Pyongyang faces a tough decision. Will it maintain this isolation even as South Korean voters extend overwhelming support to its pro-engagement administration and as the United States prepares for an election where Donald Trump, the U.S. president who has extended legitimacy to the North Korean leadership, faces a very tough competition? To discuss Pyongyang's strategic choices at this critical juncture, we have with us today Marcus Garlaskis, a former U.S. National Intelligence Officer for North Korea. KEI Senior Director Troy Sangarone caught up with him for a quick discussion. With no further delay, from the Korea Economic Institute in Washington, D.C., you're listening to Korean Context. COVID-19 has become sort of an unexpected variable in the United States' relationship with North Korea. It's clearly difficult to know what exactly is going on inside North Korea, but what dimensions or types of things should we be considering when we think about how the pandemic is actually affecting decision-making inside North Korea? So I think it's very true to call it an unexpected variable, quintessential black swan, unpredictable event with a major impact. And certainly it's not something that any of us would have had in mind last year when we were thinking about forecasting what North Korea's behavior in 2020 would look like. When I think about the effects, there's really three main dimensions that I would consider. The first and the foremost, I think, is that North Korea has to show strength domestically and internationally that COVID is not going to stop North Korea in its tracks. So you may recall back in January, North Korea was already taking countermeasures, and you had all this media buzz about how North Korea was going to be hit really hard by COVID and how bad it was going to be. But by March, you got North Korea doing these large-scale artillery drills, firing ballistic missiles, and you got KCNA showing pictures with Kim Jong-un observing live fires, but everybody around him is wearing a mask. So that's one variable. The second one is on the effects on trade and on the aid. To reduce the potential for exposure to COVID, early on, North Korea isolated itself, which led to a further drop in foreign currency income and trade on top of what it was already suffering from sanctions. And so on one hand, you can think of that being a constraint on North Korea's resources and its decision-making. However, that means North Korea is relying on aid rather than trade and really means that sanctions relief at the moment really doesn't do them all that much good. And particularly found it interesting that Radio Free Asia last month reported very quiet aid shipments coming from China to North Korea. And so there's signs that North Korea is actually recovering through sanctions evasion as well, and that they're having the ability now to restore the same level, for example, the coal smuggling they had before. So that's the second big effect. And then lastly, is in a conduct of diplomacy, the practical effects of COVID make it difficult for diplomats to travel. And so there's a limit to how much North Korea is going to be able to put stock in some major diplomatic efforts as long as COVID is restricting that. So overall, I think given what we've seen, the activity, the messaging, it's hard to avoid the conclusion that North Korea's decision-making has now reached the point where, yeah, they still have to deal with COVID, but their focus is really shifting more to uh, international and national security matters. It's interesting that you raised the economic side of things, because I was looking actually at the Chinese trade data, and 
It's still about 70% less of what they imported last year from China, but there's been a significant increase in the last month or so from complete closure of the border to where, you know, it was very minimal numbers under a million dollars to now back up to, I think it was $54 million worth of imports last mm -hmm. month. At least for a short period of time, it was a very big effect. But to sort of tie back into this whole issue of the decision-making process of COVID, you kind of talked about this early on, that we had these sort of concerns about North Korea early on in the year. North Korea had pledged to deploy a new weapon, but weapon tests have actually slowed since the second half of last year. Kim Jong-un even sent Moon Jae-in a condolence letter over COVID-19 in March. But then we saw these escalating tensions. We had the destruction of the liaison office, for example. But then North Korea seemed to back down. Is North Korea just adapting rapidly to changing circumstances, such as South Korea's response to its own actions? Or are there other factors that we should be thinking about in this decision-making process? I think we've seen a lot of consistency in North Korea's overall strategy and behavior. Now, we do see those tactical adjustments that you're talking about. Evolution is changing circumstances as they see what's working and what isn't. But honestly, I'm very skeptical of analytic models that seek to explain North Korean behavior as really reactive rather than proactive. I'm also skeptical of the idea that when we see some time between Kim saying he's going to do something, giving a warning, and then he does it, that this necessarily means he's hesitating. So I thought this uh, new strategic weapon reference, that's a good example to focus on. Just because it hasn't been revealed, I don't think we should be surprised. I think we have to consider there's a lot of factors, not just the decision at Kim's level, that it bear on the timeline for something like this. Remember back at the beginning of 2017, Kim said in his New Year's address that they would soon be testing an ICBM. But we didn't see the first launch until the 4th of July. And then it took until late November before they launched the Hwasong 15 and they declared success. So uh, hold on to your hat. I think we'll still see that strategic weapon come out this year. North Korea has made it very clear that they do not want to give up their nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future, that they want to strengthen their capability to strike the United States, to strike in the region with nuclear weapons. And I think that's a fundamental part of their strategic calculus. And so even if they've repackaged it a little bit, you know, since the the Singapore summit, I think they're actually more returning to form in many ways, very much, I think, a part of North Korea's basic strategy of relying first and foremost on strengthening the nuclear capability, nuclear deterrent as a bedrock for its security. One of the other things that's been sort of interesting about COVID-19, or at least this period, has been the effort to raise the profile of Kim Yo-jong, Kim Jong-un's sister. The belief is, is that the sinking of the Chonan was attributed to Kim Jong-un to help begin the development of his leadership credentials. Kim Yo-jong has really sort of become the public face of the recent tensions with South Korea. She even spoke recently about this proposed potential uh, summit. Are we seeing sort of a similar type of dynamic potentially taking place right here with Kim Yo-jong? Or are there other things that we should be considering in terms of why her profile has been rising recently? Overall, I mean, I think this is a really good, important question. And I think we do have to look closely at Kim Yo-jong and her status. But in general, I'm skeptical of domestic political explanations, uh, like changes in position or who's in favor, who's out, as an actual driver of external behavior. And, and I know that good friends and smart people, you know, we can disagree on that. But I think tracking the shifts in the regime leadership and how you see the state media portraying Kim Yo-jong, I think that's actually far more useful to show as a manifestation, as an indicator of the regime's intentions rather than as a driver of the decision making. So there's a couple adages here. You, heard this one before, I'm sure, from the Reagan administration, personnel are policy, right? 
And I think that adage applies even more in Pyongyang, in an environment where the leaders got absolute power and the ability to move people around. I think it's really important to look at how these people are portrayed and how they move as an indicator of what the regime is trying to tell us and what they're preparing to do. And so I'm not the first one who made the observation, but I really think Kim Yo-jong out in front as the face of the escalation towards South Korea made it much easier to pivot away from that when the time was right than having Kim Jong-un as the face of it. And I think the focus on Kim Yo-jong has actually obscured another noteworthy phenomenon in leadership with Vice Chairman Kim Yong-chol and his return to prominence last month, given his involvement in the Chonan sinking and other provocations. Regime leadership system is not set up to have a number two. The only person who ever really had that status and kept it for very long was Kim Jong-il himself as he was preparing to assume the leadership. So uh, I don't find myself agreeing uh, with the uh, Russian ambassador to North Korea very often, but as he pointed out the other day, it wouldn't really be wise to dare to be the number two in the North Korean system, and Kim Yo-jong doesn't look to be positioning for that. I want to take this conversation in a slightly different direction now, because we've talked about sort of the constraints and the leadership, but there's also a question in some ways about the opportunities for North Korea. We've seen China has been relatively more aggressive, at least in its stances. You've seen the decision to move forward with a new national security law in Hong Kong. Given the distraction in the United States still dealing with the outbreak of COVID-19, do you think North Korea might see an opportunity to perhaps take some steps they might not under normal circumstances? I mean, it's possible. And personally, I think they'd be badly miscalculating if they think that being more assertive while the United States is dealing with COVID is going to be advantageous for them. I think when it comes to North Korea, what I've seen lately is the U.S. is actually more sensitive, as we saw in the tremendous amount of attention that Kim's three-week absence got. North Koreans do look to take advantage of periods where they think the U.S. is distracted. There's this recurring theme in their propaganda, and sometimes they believe their own propaganda, that the U.S. is this overextended imperial power that's got these endless global wars and these deep deep domestic class and and racial divisions that are going to bring it down. And so they actually have this as part of their strategic thinking, I think, to see opportunities to look at the U.S.'s distracted imperial power. So you see the United States tied down in the Vietnam War in late 68 and 69, and that's when North Korea really ramps up the provocations, and so they're able to kill U.S. service members. And the question is, would we have taken the chance to escalate in response if we hadn't been tied on Vietnam? Maybe. Because of sanctions and COVID-19, we would have expected there to be a severe economic hardship in North Korea this year but life seems to be somewhat normal. How do we explain this type of resilience? I think North Korea has got a long history of being resilient. And when you look at the arduous March period in the late 1990s, how much North Korea changed as a result of that period. North Korea went from a society where the people were used to relying on getting what they needed from the state to getting to defending for themselves. And so I think that's a fundamental change that means that North Korea at the very low level of society is much more resilient in the face of these sorts of challenges, much less reliant on sorts of resources and the sorts of trade that's going to show up at the national level. They're basically relying on local small scale transactions to to get what they need. So that's one element. And I think the other element, too, is, is recognizing that even though North Korea relies a great deal on trade with the outside world to get some of the things that it wants, that overall, North Korean society, the North Korean system is designed and has been designed to rely a lot less on trade than your typical modern society. And so I think you combine those two elements 
And that tells an important story. The other thing to keep in mind is there's still a lot of smuggling going on, right? Just because these transactions don't show up in the trade statistics, you've got a society that's been very good at getting around restrictions. That can, of course, backfire on them because they can get around their own restrictions sometimes. And so when Kim Jong-un closes down the border, that doesn't necessarily mean the border's closed. But certainly, I think you take those in combination. And then, of course, the aid from China, you know, purchase of grain from Russia, these sorts of things. I mean, I'm personally not surprised that they've been this resilient, but they got to this point basically through a generation's worth of adaptation. One of the things that I think as we look forward to how relations between the United States and North Korea might develop is that there's essentially three periods. There's the pre-election period before the presidential election in the United States. There's this COVID-19 period, which clearly there's some overlap with the election period, but also we don't quite know how long it'll be till COVID-19 is no longer really a major issue. And then there's a post-COVID period. So I'd like to sort of start with the election period Recent polling has indicated that President Trump is significantly trailing Biden. That obviously could change. President Trump was trailing Secretary Hillary Clinton in 2016 and was able to win. But from the North Korean perspective, you know, we've seen this discussion of a potential summit. Are there any incentives for really engaging the Trump administration before the election and they know who's won? Or does the COVID-19 situation maybe change that calculation for them? I know that there's a lot of talk about the potential for an October surprise or for a summit, and I'm skeptical of that possibility. Right now, both North Korea and the United States, they have a desire to have the other partner make a significant change before they would be willing to re-engage in the summit. That's been the message basically both capitals have been putting out. In particular, I think Kim wants to re-engage, but only on his terms. When you look at what happened at the Hanoi summit, that was not good for Kim, right? He, he goes home, he's upset. He purges people in the leadership. He fires other people, including Kim Yong-chol, who I mentioned earlier, removes them from the positions and negotiations. And so he's not eager to rush into another situation like that. And so Kim's got this pattern of trying to re-engage only after establishing or at least portraying a position of strength, right? So when you look at 2017, that was a really big year for North Korea's weapons programs, sixth and largest ever underground nuclear test conducts its first ICBM test and tests an even bigger ICBM that can hit all the U.S. and their claim. And all after this, it's only then in his New Year's address where Kim declares the success of the testing, orders mass production of nuclear warheads and missiles, but then shifts to establishing the position of diplomatic strength. So he sets the groundwork with South Korea, then he goes to have the summit with Xi, then he has a summit with uh, President Moon, then another summit with Xi, and only after this is he really ready to engage with President Trump at Singapore. And so this all takes time. And I think that's the sort of conditions under with which you're going to see Kim really try and, and re-engage at the higher level. Now, you know, lower level positioning, I wouldn't rule that out. I'm really skeptical of this idea that there's going to be this October surprise summit. In contrast, I think we may see something, as I mentioned on this front, of the new strategic weapon. But overall, I don't see it's very likely or it's much in North Korea's interest to have a big October surprise, either some kind of major uh, overture to get to a summit or some kind of really truly provocative action. I think that that probably doesn't come until after the election. What should the United States, maybe South Korea, be doing to best be positioned to re-engage with North Korea once COVID-19 isn't really a factor? And what should that maybe engagement look like? Sure. I mean, I think as you see these indicators of Kim trying to establish his position of strength to be able to go into another round of negotiations, it's really important. And I know this sounds basic, but I think it bears repeating to make sure 
that, that Seoul and Washington are operating off a of common strategy and common principles. Even if our tactics and the messages to Kim are going to be a little bit different, that doesn't mean that you can't have a united strategy. And I think it's particularly important to stand firm and show unity when the North is testing weapons in violation of UN resolutions or otherwise being provocative. That's a window of opportunity to reinvigorate the pressure campaign, which is not mutually exclusive with setting conditions for engagement. And you got to be prepared to move quickly if North Korea does do something provocative, does, does do a weapons test in violation of UN resolutions, because that window isn't going to last. For those provocations to be followed very quickly by another pivot to engagement. And it's proven hard to keep the pressure on or to up the pressure when he is willing to engage when we stop testing. So we need to be ready for both of those, for the, the provocation and then that potential re-engagement after, and, and to really look at it for what it is as a manipulative strategy with very clear eyes. And I think this applies whenever you're engaging with North Korea, whether it's post-COVID, pre-COVID, pre-election, post-election. Those are really the two fundamental principles that I'd emphasize. What is your view of the WHO's recent report that there are no COVID cases in North Korea? I didn't read the report word for word, but it was my interpretation that they had no positive COVID tests was what the WHO was reporting. And that's not the same thing. And also, I emphasize too what I said earlier. North Korea has been putting restrictions against the, the spread of COVID in place since back in January. This is the most oppressive, restrictive society in human history, right, in terms of restricting the movement of information, of people, of ideas. And so the idea that they could clamp down to the point where they don't have COVID penetrating through their society, that's not an unrealistic possibility. I don't buy the idea that they never had any COVID cases, but the fact that they might not have had any actual positive tests come back, I wouldn't rule it out. I don't know the details of who was tested and why, and I'm not an expert on uh, virus spread and COVID testing, but I would say just because what the WHO said was they got no positive tests doesn't mean there was never COVID in North Korea. Probably the easiest question you'll get what does North Korea want? Right. So I think what North Korea wants and what Kim Jong-un wants are two different things. They're related. But I think ultimately the Kim regime and Kim himself wants to perpetuate the rule of himself and of the Kim family in perpetuity. And to achieve that, they have to maintain control inside the country and they have to establish as much dominance as possible over South Korea. And they have to break the ROK-US alliance and get US forces off the peninsula. And they have to establish a truly credible nuclear deterrent against the United States. So they have a free hand to do what they need to do in their minds for the regime to survive. So it's a very tall order, but it all comes down to, and I know it sounds trite, it comes down to regime survival. I mean, they, they see themselves as in a zero-sum war for survival. And I think that's going to be first and foremost in the Kim regime's mind. I think the average North Korean just wants to live, wants to, to have their next meal, to take care of their children, and to live their life. But I don't think that's first and foremost in Kim Jong-un's mind. That's it for our episode today. Many thanks to Marcus Garlaskis, Troy Stangarone, and to you listeners for tuning in. Staying on the subject of North Korea, we have an exciting event coming up next week on Tuesday, July 28th with Dr. Hazel Smith on the ethics of international sanctions on North Korea. Dr. Smith has worked for years advising governments and non-governmental organizations on issues related to North Korea and asks whether the illegality of North Korea's nuclear arsenal justifies the current pressures placed on the country by the international community. You can find the link to the RSVP in the description of this episode. Hope to see you there.